0: Well, good morning. I hope you guys are well rested. Uh, thank you for uh, just your hospitality and um, how welcoming you have been to my family and I. We've really enjoyed just being with you and being part of this retreat. Uh, it's a, always a privilege to preach God's Word, but even more so among friends. And so hopefully this retreat has challenged you as we've looked into God's Word, as we've beheld who God is, his glory, his holiness, his faithfulness. And for our last session this morning, we're going to focus our attention upon God's love, the love of God. I think this is crucial for our understanding because in our day and age, love, of all attributes and qualities, just in general, is often the one that is most warped, most distorted. You know, we take our cues and our definition of love from Society, from other people, from entertainment like movies and, and TV shows. And oftentimes we think of, of love as this nebulous concept. Or we might think of love as some, something that's wishy washy, you know, do whatever you want, and uh, loving you means that I tolerate your beliefs, your convictions, your, your principles that uh, rule your life. Or it's a wholesale acceptance of a person or or love is defined by emotions. But love according to God. Love, as found in the Bible, is not wishy-washy. It's not shallow and superficial. It is much more concrete, robust, and theological. And we're confronted with that truth. That God is love. And it doesn't work in the other direction. Love is not God, but God is love. And that's what we hope to see from our passage this morning. So let me go ahead and pray for our time before we begin. So let's pray. Oh Father, would you tenderize our hearts? Lord, that you might till the soil of our hearts to be fertile ground, to receive your word with gladness, that it would take root in our hearts and bear fruit in obedience to your Son, in a way that would reflect truth and love that you show us through your truth. Father, would we be so consumed and absorbed with your love, Lord, that it would bleed out of us, it would be manifested in Christ-like love in the body of Christ here in this church and to the nations as we herald the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, instruct us, that you would show us your love, not as defined by the standards of this world, but as expressed fully through your word and most perfectly in your Son. Be with us now. Lord, grant us humility that we might lean upon you for grace to understand all that you have in store for us. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Marriage, I'm sure many of you would agree and know, is one of the greatest gifts given by God. And it's one of the highest points in a person's life. I know that this is a busy season in your church's life and in a lot of people's life because this is the summertime where a lot of people get married. And I can wholeheartedly agree to how precious marriage is. If I had known marriage was this awesome, I would have stopped watching so much SportsCenter matured and grown up faster and found myself a wife. Same one, of course, but um, I, would have gotten, I would have gotten married <laughs> at a younger age. She's not here, so we'll strike that from the record. <laughs> Marriage is a great joy with manifold blessings. You know, you no longer have to go through life alone, but you're given a, a, a helper from God to accompany you through life's highs and lows. You have a companion who compliments you in many ways, and I can attest to this as I reflect upon my own marriage. You know, my wife is kind and compassionate while I can be a little rough around the edges. My wife likes to clean. She likes a tidy place, and I like to make a mess. You know, my li- wife likes to cook, and I like to eat. My, my wife actually likes to watch sports, and I praise God for such a, a, a godly attribute in her. <laughs> But what I rejoice in the most is that God has provided a powerful, tangible picture of the gospel. Because as you know from scripture, marriage is a portrait of the greatest relationship. One between Christ and the church. Christ and his people. And that's why on our wedding day, we made a vow. We covenanted with each other. And in the presence of friends, family, and before God, As a worship service, we committed ourselves to endeavor to faithfully love one another till death do us part. And that's why if we understand how powerful and how privileged we are to have the gift of marriage, it would be illogical, cruel, utterly wicked and sinful for me to betray my wife's trust and cheat on her. You know, if I were to flirt with other girls, it would go against everything marriage is and stands for, because I already have a bride. I've made my vows to her. But you know what would crush my wife's heart the most? More than physical attraction, more than smooth words, more than shady games, what would make infidelity so painful for her is because she loves me, and I have betrayed her love. Beloved, those loved by God, as Christians, as people who make up the church, His bride, God loves you. He is faithful to you, as we studied last night. But if you're anything like me, you're often surprised by how unfaithful you can be at times to Him. How easy it is to waver in your commitment to Him and flirt with sin and temptation. We turn from God and commit spiritual adultery. And the only way we will ever remain committed in love towards God is if we first realize his commitment in love towards us. This morning we build upon the gospel elements we have been examining and tracing through the Old Testament. The holiness of God and the faithfulness of God ought to intensify both our appreciation and our amazement At the love of God. In the story of Hosea, the prophet is called by God to buy back his wife, a wife who commits adultery. And this serves as a vivid picture because the book of Hosea poignantly captures a love story. It beautifully and tragically portrays God's faithful, loving pursuit of the unfaithful, of the seemingly unlovable, of how God persistently loves those who do not love Him back. This morning we'll be in Hosea chapter 3, so go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Hosea chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter. But don't worry, it's only five verses, so let's read our passage and then we'll get going. Hosea chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, said to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now the book of Hosea is one of the lesser studied books of the Bible. In fact, not much is known about Hosea the person himself. Chapter 1 merely informs us that Hosea was a prophet of God who ministered to the Israelites in the 8th century BC. So the Israelites were were the chosen nation by God to, to be his distinct people. The Israelites were to be different from all other foreign powers to show to the world that their God was unique and different, worthy of their obedience as the one true God. And during Hosea's time, the Israelites, they were ascending in national success, but conversely descending in spiritual devotion. These were the golden years, or at least what appeared to be the golden years. Israel was conquering neighboring nations and expanding their borders, but inside their hearts were shriveling, shrinking because as the Israelites climbed to the peak of their glory as a nation they began not only absorbing other lands but other gods as well and we know bad company corrupts good character the Israelites the people of God and their willingness to mingle with pagan nations was a sure indicator of spiritual adultery taking root deep in their hearts The Israelites had forsaken God. Yeah, on the outside, Israel was thriving, but they merely had the shell of good life. This is the setting, the context in which Hosea is commissioned by God to prophesy. It's when Israel had forgotten their God and committed spiritual adultery that Hosea shows up to proclaim a message of both love and repentance. In chapter 3, Packed in these five verses is a story of that theme. A story that calls us, as we read, to forsake our idolatrous ways and to return to our loving God. To to cease spiritual adultery and return to the Lord. If you need an outline, here's a simple one. The love of God, as we will see, requires first that we realize God's love. The love of God requires, firstly, that we realize God's love. And I know it seems so obvious, right? But yet, it's easily forgotten. Read with me again back in chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord, so there's the... the the comparison, the parallel, the measure, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. God commands Hosea to go again and love a woman loved by another man. Now who is this woman? Turn, flip back to chapter 1. I'm going to see this briefly in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife. What kind of wife is she? A wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. In the first chapter, Hosea, uh, God commands Hosea to take and love a woman of whoredom, a woman who will have illegitimate children with another man. And verse 3 tells us this woman is Gomer. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, Gomer its not a very attractive name, not very pretty by its own sound. And I can swear to you, when Barry and I were choosing the name of our first daughter, Gomer was not on the radar. And in the future, I promise you, Gomer will not be in the running. There will be no Gomer tie. But if you read the rest of chapter 1, the story unfolds just as God tells Hosea. Gomer is true to her identity, her character, and she prostitutes herself to others and has children with other men. And here, now back in chapter 3, after Gomer has strayed away, God charges to, to, God's charge to Hosea hits with the impact of a freight train. Go again. Go again. Did you hear that? Go once more again. Love that woman. Hosea is commanded to love the very woman who was unfaithful, who betrayed him, who committed adultery and played the whore. And God says, yes, that's the one. I want you to love her. And we feel for Hosea. We can feel his old wounds reopening, the stitching falling apart, his heart being served on a platter. He must pursue the one who can't be trusted, the one who is almost certain to leave him again, the one who does not return his affection. I mean, can you blame this guy? Look at how the woman is identified. God just puts it so briskly and clearly. Love a woman who is an adulteress. How plain and yet painful. This is contrary to what we would do. You know, there are certain qualities we look for in a spouse or will look for when we're on the hunt. You know, we have certain traits or attributes that are non-negotiables that our potential wife or husband must have. That's the way it was for me. You know, when I was looking for a girl to date, she had to have a particular set of qualities. She had to be a solid Christian who loved the Word, who loved the Gospel. She had to be compassionate, kind, faithful, She had to be really, really cute for the glory of God. (laughs) And while there are a particular set of qualities she had to have, there are also certain traits or attributes she couldn't have. She couldn't be a non-believer. She couldn't be cruel or stubborn. You know, she couldn't smell like a dude or be able to grow on a a full-on beard because that would be weird. That wouldn't be cool. Now, we all have a set of qualities or traits that are must-haves or must-nots. And they might differ from one person to another. But I believe we can all agree, none of us are searching or longing for a cheater. Right? No one says, wow, look at that girl. Her unfaithfulness is so beautiful. We don't talk like that. Who would want a woman identified as an adulteress? Think about all the hopes you have for your future spouse or the qualities you admire in your spouse now. Would you pursue them if you full well knew they were going to leave you, if they were defined as a person of unfaithfulness, a woman or man of adultery? Of course not. Unfaithfulness is the very attribute that works against the marriage and destroys it. No one marries a whore. And that's what would have perplexed, stunned the Israelites. We find out in verse 2, Hosea obeys God. And it says, So I bought her. Hosea buys his wife for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Why would Hosea buy back his wife? I mean, take it another step further And it begs another question. Why would Gomer even be in this position? In a condition where she needs to be purchased. How come she has to be up for sale? It's telling of how far Gomer has fallen. She's probably acquired such a debt, so high, that the only way she can pay it off is to stoop low. To market herself off. No longer was she the wife of a prophet but a slave for sale. And it must have punctured Hosea's heart to not only have to pursue and love her, but then to spend his hard-earned resources, to have to buy and redeem back his very wife. Now use your sanctified imagination with me. We aren't told the exact details of how this transaction Went down, but to help us feel the story, we need to step into this passage. There you picture Gomer's eyes glued to the ground. She sits on the auction block for the city in front of everyone, probably naked, as a mere spectacle to be gazed at. And then the bidding begins. One person cries out, 12 shekels of silver. And Hosea quickly announces, I'll give 13 shekels. And you can see Gomer's Gaze, lifted up a little, shocked to recognize Hosea's voice. But another blurts out, 14 shekels. Hosea follows, 15 shekels, I'll pay 15. And as the auction seems to be coming to a close, another voice calls from the crowd, 20 shekels. And there's a pause. Panic seizes Hosea because he only has 15 shekels. And so his brain rushes into a mental scramble. He shouts out in desperation, I'll give 15 shekels and a homer and a lethic of barley. Which is a package that amounts probably to around 30 shekels. 30 shekels. And there's silence. Everyone else refrains from bidding. They won't spend more than 15 shekels. More than the typical price of a slave. Hosea pays double. Hosea pays double the standard rate. The auction is finished, sold. Hosea buys back his wife. And everyone present, everyone in their right mind, is shocked, bewildered. And the Israelites approach Hosea one by one with their questions. Why did you do this, Hosea? Why did God call you to do this? Why would God put you through this kind of heartbreak, this kind of betrayal and shame? Why would God call you to love and buy back the very woman who left you and stepped on your heart on the way out. Why? And you know what Hosea would say? He would cry back just as strongly, just as firmly, because that's exactly what God did for you, Israel. Hosea's tragic and painful life experience was a visual aid to the Israelites, one that they were to never forget. It was a graphic image of how God persistently loved, how God devoted himself to Israel, even though the very people of God prostituted themselves, played the whore, and went after other gods. So that every time an Israelite questioned Hosea why, he would respond, because of you. Because of you. My heartbreak is meant to demonstrate how God persistently loves you, though you commit spiritual adultery. You are the adulterer redeemed by God. And if there's anyone who gets that story, if there's anyone who gets that illustration, shouldn't it be us? We live many years after this event where God has given us a bright and full picture of his persistent love. And you know where you find it? At the cross. Every single one of us is that woman. We're on the block. We're enslaved to sin. We have gone after other lovers, given ourselves to other gods, false gods. The God of comfort, the God of anger, the God of pride, the God of self, the God of career, the God of personal prestige. And God speaks to his son, go again, son. Love a people of adultery. And Jesus enters into the marketplace and he looks at us unfaithful with nothing to offer him. And he pursues us. He persistently loves us and he buys us back. Only what he offers is not money, not silver or gold, but his own precious blood. He lays down his life that you might have life in and through him. He redeems us that we should be his and he ours sinner do you realize God's love for you there was no price too high even if it cost his own son Jesus Christ the son of God perfect and holy faithful and true redeems us dies for us to make wretched sinners spiritual whores to transform us into his beloved children children of God and thus we are What are you to do? What are you to do when you feel the urge to disobey and sin, Christian? When you feel your heart failing and stale? When your commitment to God is growing cold? The solution is very simple. Draw near to the cross. Meditate. Bathe yourself in his love. You know, the times you feel most compelled to love others is usually when you're first blown away by someone's love for you. You know, I love my wife more genuinely and authentically when I, not when I see it as a duty, but when I delight in her love for me. And so the same. Beloved, when you are captivated by the depths of his love, when you realize that he would not and did not stop, when you ponder over what it cost him to redeem you, how can you possibly forsake him? How can you be apathetic and unresponsive. How can you not find swelling within yourself a deep desire to love the one who loves you so fully? The Apostle John reveals this so simply to us. We love because he first loved us. The love of God produces love in the hearts of his children. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan, said this, The more we believe, the more we believe in God, his love for us, the more we love. Faith is the root, and love is the flower that grows upon it. Do You see how the gospel blossoms forth even from the Old Testament. Those devastated, demolished by the holiness of God, Those undone and in awe of the faithfulness of God are those delighted by and delighting in the love of God. The love of God requires you to realize His love. And secondly, the love of God requires you then to repent of your sins. The love of God requires you to repent of your sins. You know, the persistent love of God shouldn't leave us passive. The love of God ought to compel you to action. It ought to produce within you a desire to weed out any unfaithfulness residing in your heart. The two go hand in hand. Look at verse 3. This is after Hosea buys back his wife. He says to her, you must dwell as mine. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also Be to you. It's as if they're renewing their marriage covenant. Verse 4: For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Hosea redeemed Gomer for a distinct purpose: that she would be his and he hers. She would belong to him and him alone. No longer was she to pursue other lovers. No longer was she supposed to be someone else's possession. She was Hosea's, and Hosea was hers. And the Israelites must have understood this because Hosea chapter 3, this was their story. The Israelites were to no longer go after other lovers. The Israelites were were no longer someone else's possession. The Israelites were the people of God. But their track record held no semblance of that reality, of that identity. Their track record showed themselves selling out, prostituting themselves. And what's interesting is how they went astray, how they committed their idolatry. They didn't full-on abandon God and remove him completely from their lives. They merely added to him. That's why in verse 4 you have elements associated with worship of God like sacrifice and priestly ephod mixed with elements associated with worship of false gods like pillars and household idols. The Israelites were not condemned because they failed to offer sacrifices. They were condemned because they were also adding pagan pillars. The Israelites were not charged for disregarding the priestly duties, the priestly ephod, but for adding and worshiping household gods, little idols. They thought that they could have God, yes, but something more, something else. That's how they committed their idolatry, by addition, by subtly compromising, by inviting other things, by giving in little by little to their impurity. And we look at these Israelites, and we write them off. We think to ourselves, what stupid people, How could they be so foolish? They had God. Why would they ever want something more? But don't we do the same? Aren't we just as guilty? We won't come out and completely devote ourselves to pagan idols, but we have promiscuous tendencies. We have subtle compromises, little impurities just like the Israelites. Our problem is the same. We try to worship God and then we try to also get our own. You know, the scariest form of idolatry is the one that hides under the cloak of worship. The one that hides under the guise of God's glory. When we love the praise of our peers for playing on the praise team more than we love praising God himself. When praying before a meal is not opportunity to esteem ourselves and sound eloquent or godly, when we pat ourselves on the back for answering a difficult theological question, when our reputation, our Christian reputation at church matters more than our Christ, when we defile our worship of God by trying to improve or add to it for our own gain, for our own liking, for our own preference. That's exactly what the Israelites were doing. It's not like they aborted worshiping God. They just adjusted it a little to accommodate their own wisdom, their own wants, and adding their seemingly innocent idols. The question for us is, how are we impure in our devotion to God? What are the little idols hidden deep, nested within our hearts? So how do you identify your idols? Well, ask yourself this. What is the one thing or the main thing that if you lost it or had to part with it, it would devastate you? What is your non-negotiable, your indispensable? Who or what are you depending on most to make you feel like life is worth living? If it's anything besides Jesus, then that's your idol. It doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. You know, it could be your house, your comforts, your family, your ministry in church. But it's a good thing that goes wrong because you make it an ultimate thing. Idolatry, for the most part, is never flagrant rebellion. It's an insidious slipping. It's slowly giving in. And all that is required is a little mixing, a little tainting, a little compromise. And that's what the Israelites had done. Because of their adulterous ways, Hosea declares that the Israelites would dwell many days without a king or prince because they rejected God as their only king. They would be without sacrifice and ephod because they had failed to consecrate themselves wholly to the Lord. They would be without pillar or household gods and any other items they added to their blemished worship. They would be stripped of it all, stripped of everything so that they wouldn't have the opportunity of confusing what's essential, of being distracted from their God. And the same God who will not trade His glory for another, the same God who is fiercely committed to His people, is the same God before us today. He's not interested in how much of your life you will give to Him. He's interested in whether you will love Him, in whether you will live for Him, period. It's all or nothing. Jesus said it himself. No one, absolutely no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Listen to that kind of language. It's very black and white. You hate one and love another. There are no other options. There's no middle ground. Yet there's hope. Look at verse 5. Afterward, after this reproving stage, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There will come a day when Israel, the Israelites, return. The solution is not to coddle our sinful idols or occasionally gratify or promiscuous hearts. The solution is a complete turning. It's a wholesale repentance. It's only when the Israelites sober up, take a whole inventory of their heart, when they turn from playing the whore and return to being the faithful bride, that they can devote themselves entirely to the Lord. Those are the days when they will be able to look to their Lord in fear and in wonder of His goodness. Those are the days when they will again have a king, the King of David, Christ himself, when they look away from the idols of their hearts and look towards their faithful Redeemer. It's only when the Israelites repent, turn from their sins, and seek God. And it's the same for us. You know, our bodies can only move in one direction, and our hearts can only worship in one direction. We need to be brutally honest. Pray for help and humility and examine our hearts. What are the idols we need to turn from? What are the worldly desires we need to repent of? Where have we declared to God that we are worshiping, worshiping him while compromising by adding our own idols, no matter how small or discreet? Listen, it's not an issue of whether or not you have idols in your heart. It's a matter of where the only way to truly love God, to grow in our love towards God, is to turn from worshiping our sin and return to worshiping Him as Lord. It requires complete turning. It requires wholehearted repenting. God demands it, and His love requires it. And you might say, that's too hard. You know, that's not fair. In fact, that might be our initial reaction to this entire chapter. This is, This is too harsh. This is too much, too demanding. The requirements are too steep. It's not fair that we have to realize his love. It's not fair that we have to repent of our idols. That's our response to this entire passage. It's not fair. And maybe we're shocked or appalled by what transpires in the chapter itself. It's not fair for Hosea to marry an adulterous woman who betrayed his trust. It's not fair for him to buy back his own wife. You know what? It's not about fair. Because it wasn't fair for God to pursue an unfaithful bride in the Israelites. It wasn't fair for Christ, the perfect groom, to die for wayward sinners. Church, you don't want fair. Fair lands you in hell. You want something better than fair, you want grace. That God is so committed to forgiving and changing and loving you that He sent Jesus to die for sinners. You need a persistent love in which He decided to love you when He could have justly condemned you and left it at that. A love that suffers for you. You need a love that is full of blood, sweat, and tears. You need a love that fights for you and buys you back. You need a love that fights you and calls you to repent of your sins. You need something more than fair. You need the crown of thorns. You need his nail pierced hands. You need to hear him say, I will never leave or forsake you. You need him. And then you need to become like the one who loves you. You and I need the better love of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're so humbled by the magnitude of your love. And it comes in part by who you are, that you are holy, God. And it comes in part by who we are, unworthy sinners. And Lord, that chasm just leaves us in awe, amazed at the depth of your love. That you would pursue those who would not pursue you, so much so that you would give your son for sinners that you would change our hearts. Oh Lord, I pray for all of us here that you would mar- melt any hardness of heart, that we'd be tender towards Christ, and that would infiltrate all that we do. That would be the spectacle by which we see ourselves, others, and all that you have given to us. That we might not only be clothed in your love, but we would clothe our actions, our attitudes, our relationships, our work, and the love of Christ, that you might be glorified and honored, that you might be exalted and revered. Father, continue to teach us and mold us that as we abide in Christ, we would bear much fruit for your glory, for our joy. We pray these things in Christ's name.